Welcome to the On-Premise IT Roundtable Podcast, the only show that dares to be both on topic, or on-premise as it were, and on location, and on-premises. So we are on-premises here uh, for a discussion about security. In this episode, we're going to be asking the question, you know, security is kind of a nightmare, but is it so much a nightmare that it can't be solved? Should we just give up? I guess we'll find out if security is just a dumpster fire that we can't put out. But first, I'm going to allow our guests to introduce themselves. Let's start with you, Rob. Hi, my name is um, Rob Rogers. I'm a chief architect at a company called Skyport Systems. Um, I care a lot about security, which means I'm despondent. Despondent. Uh, my name is Brandon Carroll. You can find me on Twitter at Brandon Carroll or uh, blogging these days at datanetworkingtalk.com. And Nils Swart uh, at NL Nils. Um, I run product management at Skyport Systems. So this came out of a discussion that we were having with Skyport. Obviously, you guys have a different take on security. But um, stepping back from that overall, um, it just seems, in my opinion, that security is, is well, just perennial trouble. It's like it's never been solved. We just keep finding more holes. And it can really leave somebody despondent. So Rob, tell us about your problems. Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> All right, I'm going to kick back my feet, lay back on the couch. So I think the the premise of the discussion that security can be solved is actually somewhat wrong. The The genuine problem with security is that you can do exactly the right thing and it will be the wrong thing a week later. And the reason for that is that um, what is a best practice is really dictated as much by what the people in the environment know, what the adversaries know, as it is by what you've actually done or the systems that you use. And the fundamental principle of how adversaries function is that they learn new things on a continuous basis. And as such, your best practices change. And if you are not changing with them, you'll inevitably drown under the flood of attacks that ensue from new discoveries as they go. Um, so in, just to put a little context, in 1974, uh, Ken Thompson um, wrote a paper called uh, Reflections on Trusting Trust. And his point was that no matter what you do, in the end, you have to trust not just the person who wrote the software, but the person who wrote the tools that turn your software into code, and in turn, the person who wrote the operating system modules, of which there are hundreds of people, um, need to be trusted in addition to the person who writes the software that you're running. It's really turtles all the way down. See, it's that's turtles the all you, the way you, down. You, you have to trust Vulnerable this, turtles. And then that, and then that, and then that, and then yeah, that. Correct. And there's always something else. You know, I, mean, I was recently at a conference, and uh, we had, they had uh, you know, Snowden um, talking, and he's uh, throwing, you know, casting aspersions at Intel CPUs. And so, it's like, well, what are we going to do? So actually, the Intel CPU thing is kind of interesting, right? Because if you don't trust Intel, then you absolutely cannot trust ARM. Intel makes more in one quarter than ARM makes in multiple years. So if the NSA or some other government entity can convince Intel to do something nefarious and evil and put their entire business at risk, then you certainly can't trust ARM or Cavium or Cisco or any other large company that has ASICs or does hardware development or software development. If someone came, so we wouldn't do this. I mean, if someone came to us and said, hey, we'll give you $2 billion in revenue that we'll launder through some vehicle so that your company can IPO and you can become rich, I mean, we wouldn't do it, but I think I know people who would. And, and that, see, that's the, that's the issue. So, I mean, what do you guys think? Is, are you as despondent, Brandon? You're smiling, at least. I, 
I am. I mean, I'm a security guy, and for a long time, my day job, part of my day job, was trying to secure networks. And I think it's really hard to to look at security and and not be despondent about <laughs> it. Or it's it's like you can't really say that that it, you can fix it because it's too broad, right? So like a dumpster fire is is even a too small of a term to describe the problem <laughs> that we have. Fire, right? You can throw some water on that thing, it, right? It, it's like a garbage dump, right? And you've got tons of fires, right? Because you've got fires in the enterprise, fires at the service provider level. Uh, you know, there's so many different places. And then when you look at the, the adversaries, and like you mentioned, you know, they're learning new things every day. They're targeting where they're going to make money and where there's there's bigger gaps, end users, you know, holes like that. But I just think it's too too big to ever completely solve the problem, but it's not something that we'll ever be able to stop trying to solve. I like so, your so we've got the uh, we've got sort of a developer spec perspective. We've got kind of a uh, an IT pro perspective. Give me maybe an end user perspective. I'll I'll try the end user perspective um, because I actually think there are positive things that we can do. Um, I think it's it's there's not a lack of tools out there. Uh, there's you know, one of the problems probably is there are too many tools. If you go to any conference about security, you're going to be bombarded with vendor A, B, C, D, E, F, G, with ML, AI, and tons of things that look the same, smell the same. Um, so the problem isn't necessarily that there are no tools. Um, there's probably too many of them. Um, but I think there's a solution that we can find in making it easier, make the, make the security problem, or at least the, the basis of that security problem, um, help that you know, make that go away. And I think, for instance, Apple has done a tremendous job of integrating on an iPhone with iMessage and the entire thing. They've done an excellent job. But in order to do that, they have to compress the entire stack and make it usable. Mm-hmm. Like, I cannot explain to anyone in my family what they should do to their phone. I'd rather them have an iPhone than you know, go futz around with something that has a rootkit on top of it. And I, I was actually going to bring up Apple. Uh, I'm glad you brought it up now because yeah, it seems to me that they're one of the only companies that is offering at least a compelling end user story about security. But, right, but you look at it, they do that by hiding it. Like if, if you go to the, the conferences and, and see how their one-way hashing mechanism looks like, which is essentially shredding certain cards, certain portions, that's all, like it flies over the heads of everyone. They're like, eh, it should just work. Uh, there was another conference uh, recently where like certificate, um, you know, certificate acceptance warning messages were shown on screen. And like, there's the thing that has the Firefox or Chrome screen, which has all the right information, like which you want to accept is really dangerous, and then the screen how it's interpreted, which is basically find the button that makes that screen go away. I think that's the problem on the end user side. It's, it's, it's not that the user deliberately wants to do the wrong thing, they just have so many ways to cut themselves. And I think that should be taken away. Like more things can be taken away to be cut. You talk about the end user, user side, I just think of, you said there's too many tools, there's too many things. I just think of one person, you know, you support your family. They're, they're end users, right? <laughs> My grandmother, you know, her computer's giving her problems. I look at it. She's got five or six different antiviruses installed on the one machine, and she has no idea what she's doing, and she doesn't even know if she can trust who she's gotten one of those tools from. Well, she can't because all of the antiviruses are basically reduce the security foot, the security posture of the machines on which they're installed. Exactly. So Chromebooks for everyone. Or, you know, 
Microsoft well, Surface so or something that's locked down. Step, step way back. The, the, the fundamental problem... So look, Apple is an amazing company and their secure enclave implementation is an amazing implementation. They've done a lot, which is with a focus on user privacy protection. Um, but a lot of their security techniques are, are in as much about supportability as they are about security. So for Apple, there's a huge benefit to knowing that the software has not been tampered with in any way. It makes supportability cheaper. Like security can be a win for everybody involved, but you give up a kind of freedom to get there. And that's probably for the best, but it is nonetheless true. Yeah, so exactly, supportability. And, and I guess what Brandon was saying too, in terms of you know my, my grandma or whatever, um, that's supportability also. Oh, great. So we're all IT support for our families, probably. Um, oh, yes. And my <laughs> response to the you know, eight different Internet Explorer toolbars was, here, you have an iPad. <laughs> you know, that I felt like was a better response. Um, but of course, you know, you have to trust Apple and you have to trust not only that, but as, as Nils points out, um, you have to trust that Apple's doing it right, that they didn't make some mistake. And they're so opaque that you have no way of knowing if they're doing it right. So what is right, though? So right is a temporal concept. So you buy someone an iPad, and Apple eventually discontinues software updates for that iPad. That iPad is now gone now from wrong. a benefit to a yeah. liability if you continue to use it. Um, that assumes that people actually install the updates, which even though Apple makes it really, like Apple does a wonderful job of this, they actually get people to update. But if you don't update, you're actually in worse shape because one of the side effects of issuing an update is announcing to the world that a vulnerability exists. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Isn't time sort of against us in terms of security as well? When you think about Apple, and, and you look at iOS, for example, and you think, okay, well, security-wise, they're, they're doing things right, but didn't they kind of start from scratch and then build up that operating system? So originally, it was very limited in what it can do, and as time's gone by, yeah, they, they sandbox apps, but now there's communication between them, and the more and more that they open the operating system up for functionality, mm. the less and less security we have. So when you look at other operating systems that we've used, whether they're networking operating systems, desk, desktop operating systems, the more capability they have, the less secure they're going to be, right. and that just happens over time. I mean, general purposeness is a larger surface, which means you have a larger attack surface, yeah. which, yeah, I agree. But and is it, that always going to be true? The more it does, the more it can be attacked? Surface, yeah. Yep, I agree with that. Yeah, I think that there's a there's good progress that can be made. Um, I think on the, the there's there's the hard technical answer of introspecting what an application's doing or a thing on a server or a thing on a on a laptop or on a, an iPhone and then deciding that hey you're doing the wrong thing. I think we're we're now slightly moving the conversation, you know, in, in two separate directions. One is do you trust whatever the thing is that's being brought up? Like, is there trust in the tool, the, the tools that you've chosen that are being used? Or do you think that there is, um, you know, inherently no way that we can trust anything anymore? And I think, you know, for for all intents and purposes, I would like to be able to trust my car to do the right thing. So I hope that they're doing the right things to to make sure they do static analysis of code, uh, they do some form of introspection, maybe not while the car is running, but at least do some of that stuff. And I think there's there's good progress being made. But uh, as Rob mentioned, um, I think you you cannot have static software anymore. You cannot rely on 
version one was installed, I'm done, I'm going to walk away, and 10 years later, maybe upgrade something. So it's not just the software, it's also the practices around that software. Mm -hmm. So your best practice changes continuously. We're all on a treadmill, on a security treadmill that we can never get off of. And that comes from the connectedness of the world that we live in now. So if you have to you know, have good practices, good management practices with software, that leads me to a thought, which is perhaps then centralization and cloud computing is actually a positive for security because at least they know their system. At least you, you, you could see us a world in which we have sort of uh, super experts who know the one thing that they know, at least they're going to manage it, right? Right? Oh, no. Well, I mean, let's step back, right? So Amazon and GCE and so on are extraordinarily careful about where they draw the line of responsibility. So imagine that Microsoft shipped a perfect version of Windows that was constantly updated and had no holes. I mean, let's put aside the fantasy aspects of that. Um, nonetheless, I'll download some application and it'll be full of holes. Mm -hmm. And that will never be Microsoft's responsibility, although to their credit and to Apple's credit, they even do try and sandbox the applications within that host to try and prevent them from stealing all your contacts, mailing all your friends, whatever. Um, Amazon draws the bar a little bit lower. Like The bar of responsibility for Amazon is below the VM. And so given that most of the complexity is in the 20 million lines of code that is in the giant software stack of even the simplest application, that you deploy in a VM, I don't think it matters. Amazon's security is as much about protecting Amazon and from you causing chaos to their business as it is about giving you any security. Like, you can run a completely vulnerable version of Windows, Windows 2003 with no patches on AWS, and they'll do nothing for that. There's nothing done by that. A, a sort of more negative view is, um, you know, something that generates lots of traffic, it means lots of money for those companies. So in that sense, oh, okay, fair. That's a, There's a, mm. a conflict of interest, maybe. A well, I, I don't know that it's a conflict of interest. It, it's just that they don't care what you do with it. I think that's fair. And, and they shouldn't care. And they need to because not Because the minute care. they started caring, then people would freak out the other way and say, you know, how come you won't let me run sure, Windows 2003 on, on AWS? Yeah. So, but to that point, though, if we move away from sort of general purpose compute and more in the direction of like serverless and function-based programming, and I, I, for, actually, one First question is, this is Silicon Valley. We're, we're living in a, a filter bubble, a uh, massive filter bubble. So we all think that some of these technologies are already really close to being massively deployed. From your perspective, do you see that? Because that essentially means you're taking application logic out of all of the cruft that is OS's and the rest of the libraries and just take that part that you really care about and hand it into uh, you know, a Lambda function or something like that. You see that being used? I don't know. Um. I don't know. <laughs> wow, non-committal. I, 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 I don't know. I just, I just see this. I, I'm just still thinking about the whole, you know, this thing with with Amazon and and them being below where the security's at, not worried about the the, mm. the VM. And it's almost like for certain types of uh, services, the answer is security's not my problem. That's true. I mean, they present the model of a mainframe, right? Yeah. Old school mainframes, they had VMs. And for the VMs were isolated completely from one another, and they were independent of the underlying yeah. uh, supervisor in that universe. Um, and security of the VMs was entirely up to the application that was run. It was, and that is the model that Amazon uses. It's basically a giant OS 360 in the sky. Yeah. But once, once you have 
you know, whatever product it is that you're shipping that is in a perfect state and it, it does what it does and you have a best practice around it, at that point, I think the bigger problem is having those responsible for it actually follow the best practice. Uh, defined versus uh, sort of conformance. Right. Yeah, I think that's true, and, and especially if it changes. And there's also a question there, sort of the fiduciary aspect. So, you know, you know what I mean? A fiduciary is... Uh, somebody who's responsible to look after your money in your best interest, not in their best interest. Um, do we need kind of a compute fiduciary? Do we need to be able to say, okay, in the serverless world, the person who's running the database component or whatever um, is responsible to who actually, the end user or the application developer, instead of to Amazon or Google? I, I think that would be a powerful concept. I think it's hard to, to get to, but if you think about it, you're, you're basically hiring them to do a thing. We have all these wonderful business contracts that limit liability in one way, shape, or form, but really, as a just cut away all the legalities, you kind of want to do that. You're kind of trusting them to do the right thing. Um, you know, they should take care of that, and you should be able to turn around and say, hey, you didn't do the right job. Um, mm -hmm. I need to get compensated for that. Because right now, you absolutely cannot. If you go to those folks, you're right. I mean, the contract that you signed says they're not responsible for pretty much anything as long as it leaves their system running. I'm, I mean, that flies in the face of how software is built. So I'm not going to indemnify anyone for 40 million lines of Java SDK and Linux code. It is actually impossible to ask someone to do that. If we went down that path, you would have to start doing software in the small. And software in the small is something that we abandoned um, probably three decades ago for good reasons, but there's no way back to that sort of simplified world. So that would work, but we're never going to do it. It would work if you were willing to give up almost everything. So we could all just go live in cabins, right? Uh, I'd actually be okay with top wood. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, and then there we are again with as time goes by and more stuff gets added and Right? I, yeah. If yeah. you go back in time and start from scratch, yeah, it's great. We're going to get but, right back here, aren't we? But, yep. yeah. So, wow. I guess it really is a dumpster fire then. Is there no, I, I mean, uh, to wrap it up, can you think of any, I, I don't want to say a short, even a short-term prescription. I mean, can you think of anything? Is there any shining light here? <laughs> I, sorry, I think that the shining light is if at least we can get the people who support these systems to get them to realize that what they're playing with right now is is you know combustible at least like if somebody has a description of this is the way a certificate should be used and by the way don't use it longer than you know 128 days let's just at least follow that so it's to the conformance aspect of it mm -hmm. but also make sure that we that we all understand roughly what it means if you click yes to you know, sort of ignore or restore an exception permanently so i think Mostly, most of the things where I think of um, are, are positive aspects of where we can make forward progress is to help educate users somehow, not to teach them how to use tools in great detail, but make them at least aware, like, wait a minute, before you click something, you know, think again. I think we're, uh, you know, it's possible. I'm positive. Uh, I think in, from the networking perspective or the network security perspective, it's having the operators or the administrators 
come to a realization that there, there is no perfect answer to network security. There's no perfect answer all around, and it's more a matter of doing due diligence and not being blatantly neglectful of security policy and procedures. I don't know what else you could do. Anything, Rob? Any any prescriptions? I actually, I actually, I actually want to. So I'll, I'll give up my despondence temporarily and become an optimist. Um, I think there is hope, and here is the nature of the hope, though. Um, we can achieve uh, approximate equivalence to being secure by trying. So it doesn't take. So the in the 1970s there were lots of like self defense classes, and what they would tell people like first rule is don't look like a victim. Um, I think the the real issue with security is going to look like this until there are autonomous entities that are doing um, security attacks. So until this has been mechanized and automated. Um, finally, you're playing with a game where someone has a budget of some kind, either a personal budget or something that they're spending trying to find a vulnerability or an attack, and. The way the security market works right now is kind of um, the security industry as a whole kind of works like this. Imagine a bunch of ants, and one of them, in their ant explorations of some space, they find a dead caterpillar. And they go back to the nest and like, hey, look, I found this caterpillar. Let's all go raid it and take the caterpillar bits back and eat it. The ants don't sit around and say, hey, that guy's a genius. He found a caterpillar. He must be a genius. But if you look at the security industry, it's exactly that. There are dozens and dozens, hundreds, thousands of people trying to find vulnerabilities. And one of them every now and then gets lucky. And then they're raised and elevated as pure geniuses. And some of them are amazing. They are amazingly bright. But there aren't actually that many hits. Otherwise, this process, this sort of adulation around people who find something would have faded by now. So our, our fortune in this environment is that the hits are unlikely because the current way that people search for vulnerabilities is actually kind of broken. And so one of our things that makes our life actually really good uh, is that discoveries are unlikely. The other thing is that if you even try, you're probably 20 times better off than someone who doesn't try and, is, is, and looks like a victim, smells like a victim. And so even just by trying, even if you're not all that good at it, and especially if you do things that where you elevate you, you you sort of elevate your position by using other people's expertise, it's not worth attacking you. Like I can go on. Um, there's a search engine for vulnerabilities right now where you can go and look for find me the Windows servers that are online that have not been patched for Petya. When Petya start when 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 WannaCry came out, there were 1.8 million Windows servers exposed to the public internet. And um, of which, sorry, SMB servers, and of that, about 900,000 Windows servers. When Petya came out, which used the same vulnerability, uh, there were over a million. <laughs> so the number in the in the light of like a huge vulnerability outbreak that like took down hospitals and whatever, uh, the re net result of that was that the world as a whole became less security aware and less security conscious. And so I think the hope that I have is that if, if people just try, if they just try and do the right thing, they'll be protected in some way. So I'm an optimist about this. I'm despondent, but an optimist. So, so it sounds like essentially you're going back to that old truism that you don't have to be secure. You just have to be more <laughs> secure than your neighbor. Exactly right. You know, you, you just have to be I less of a victim. True. So I guess we'll leave it on that. Uh, thank you very much for listening to the On-Premise IT Roundtable. 
If you enjoyed this discussion, well, then there must be something wrong with you because we're all despondent in here. But if you did <laughs> and enjoy it, um, please do uh, head over to uh, iTunes or your favorite subscription service and click like. Give us a, uh, a rating or a review and um, share the show with your friends. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by GestaltIT.com, your home for IT coverage across the enterprise. For show notes and more episodes, go to gestaltit.com slash podcast. And uh, we'll see you next time, as long as we're all still here. <laughs> the On-Premise IT Roundtable is once again brought to you by Gestalt IT, home to IT coverage from across the enterprise. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Gestalt IT and at facebook.com slash Gestalt IT. Very original. The On-Premise IT Roundtable is produced by Rich Straffolino. That's me. Until next time, from all of us here at Gestalt IT, have a super sparkly day.